Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. like to welcome you to a very special edition of Cold Steel. Today we have the absolute privilege of discussing a number of topics with Dr. Lawrence Gilman. Lawrence is an associate professor at the Department of Surgery at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. And while Lawrence is well known for many, many things across the country, including founding the Start Trauma Team Dynamics course, he's also known as a national thought leader with regard to ultrasound and simulation. What we enjoyed most about the conversation by far and away was the personal side of surgery and medicine. More specifically, we touch on raising kids, we chat about family loss, and about coping with both of those things, both in the pre-COVID-19 context as well as since. Dr. Gilman, you're the founder of the START course, which is the Standardized Trauma and Resuscitation and Team Training course, which is a very popular course and uh, has been very critical to trauma training, particularly in Canada. Can you talk to us a little bit about how this came about? Sure. Um, certainly wasn't our intention to start a course. It was from kind of humble beginnings. Um, Sandy Witter and I both trained in Calgary. Um, both of us were kind of exposed to simulation as part of the critical care training program and the ACEs course and kind of realized at the time nothing really existed in surgery, at least in our centers. So when we went back to our programs, we both kind of at the same time sort of individually decided we wanted to start some sort of local simulation CRM, kind of crisis resource management training. Uh, Both of us happened to contact Peter Brindley um, at the same time because he was one of the ones that trained us and taught us a lot about simulation um, just to get some advice. And he actually suggested, hey, why don't you start a course um, training people across Canada? And we kind of said, well, that's kind of silly, but well, maybe we'll give it a try. And so we kind of threw something together for um, CSF. Uh, We approached CSF. It was in Calgary in 2012. And we said, hey, can we try running a course here? Um, And that's kind of where it started. We ended up sending out a needs analysis, um, just a survey across Canada. No one else was really doing any simulation at the time. And there was a huge interest in doing it. And it sort of just grew from there. And We never really had any direction or purpose. We kind of just let it take us where it would go. And we sort of just followed the pathway and it's led us on some great um, experiences and it's kind of grown on its own. And it's been a really neat um, way to get to know people across Canada and starting to be around the world. And um, it's just been a great experience and it's just kind of grown and blossomed on its own. So for those of us who don't uh, know what START is or haven't participated in START, can you just briefly talk about what START entails and exactly what the simulations are like? 
For sure. So it's changed a lot over the years. We've learned a lot about simulation. We've learned a lot about teaching multidisciplinary groups. So our intention initially when we started the course was just to teach our residents. That was how we started it. Um, but very quickly, we realized teaching residents to work in teams in isolation doesn't really make sense. And really, unless you teach the whole team, um, you don't really accomplish anything. So very quickly, we opened it up to nurses and respiratory therapists as well. What made it a little bit unique from other courses is that a lot of courses use nurses, even the ACES course uses nurses. ACES is the critical care sort of equivalent. Um, but the nurses uh, are there as sort of confederates. They're there to supplement the learning of the physicians, but they're not necessarily participants in the course. What we changed is we made everyone full participants. So everyone comes in to the simulations blind. No one knows. They work as teams. They work together as a group. And the idea is that everyone trains together. Um, so it's changed, like I said, a lot over the years. The current model is um, everyone gets mailed out uh, an electronic version of the textbook. They're asked to do some pre-reading before the course. Uh, they come in, it's a one-day course. Um, the morning starts with some very basic didactic stuff, just an hour sort of review on CRM principles, hoping a lot of people have done the reading and know a lot about it already. Talks a little bit about trauma team design and how you might structure your trauma teams. And then we get into some basic um, low fidelity teamwork, team-based simulations where we do what's called a paper chain activity where people work together on a very simple project, but it teaches some very important teamwork principles. Uh, from there, we move into our simulations. Um, basically, they rotate through four high fidelity simulations in the day. So high fidelity meaning sort of real lifelike trauma simulations. They're very hard. They're designed to make people not fail, but they're designed to bring out problems in the team communication. The focus is not on the medicine. There is obviously a lot of medicine and a lot of discussion around sort of resuscitation principles, but the focus is more on interactions between the team members, how they work together, their leadership principles, their problem solving principles, and trying to give them a toolbox of tools that they can use later in other resuscitations, basically. There are um, stumbling blocks that are built in again, sort of in the simulations um, to help bring out those principles um, and to help uh, help the teams learn together. They're told they're going to make mistakes. They're expected to make mistakes. And that's the beauty of simulation is you make mistakes in the simulated environment. No one gets hurt and you learn from those mistakes. So they spend about 15 to 20 minutes in the simulation. And then we spend about an hour debriefing and talking about it. And the debriefing is really the, the nuts and bolts of simulation. It's really the time to discuss everything, talk about feelings and emotions and how everyone felt during the simulation. Um, we have trained debriefers that spend the day with each team. So we call them team leaders um, or um, team navigators. And they just spend the day with their team. The team consists usually of four physicians, three nurses, and one or two respiratory therapists. They work together for the day. They learn from each other. And the debriefer leads them through the day, basically, and leads them through those simulations. Coupled with that, we have some skills stations as well. They spend some time doing some phone-based simulations, um, simulating distance resuscitation, uh, like telementoring, basically. 
um, similar to if you were taking calls from up north or from a rural station. Uh, and then they do some skills as well, ultrasound skills like IV access and crikes. And uh, we tried to do things that were relevant to all the groups, basically. And within each simulation, we tried to bring out uh, objectives for each of the groups. Um, so that's been the main type of course that we've run. We've also run an alternate course where we include pre-hospital personnel as well. We kind of call it Start Plus. We've only run it a few times in Winnipeg. But in that course, we actually bring in um, pre-hospital personnel as well. We've had uh, aeromedical personnel as well as um, paramedics. And uh, we do some pre-hospital work as well, part of the scenarios and some handover between pre-hospital and hospital teams. And then we actually do a mass casualty at the end as well. So that's been the second version of the course that we've run. Um, that's been great. It takes obviously a lot more work, a lot more setup. It's a lot harder to do sort of flying into a center. Um, but it's been a great addition as well. Sounds like an amazing course. You, you obviously wrote a textbook as well that goes along with the start course. Well, first of all, why, why did you write a textbook for a course that, uh, you know, is mostly about simulation and about team building? I'm, I'm curious about that. And the second thing is, how have you kept the course fresh and kept evolving things as things go forward? Because I think one of the hard things about a course like this is you kind of have to make the scenarios new and fresh because otherwise word gets out among the participants and perhaps you lose some of the fidelity if people know what the, the scenarios are going into the course. For sure. So, so the textbook's funny. Like I said, everything has just sort of followed its own path and fallen into place. Again, we didn't set out to write a textbook. Um, our goal was to supplement it with some sort of pre-reading material. One day is a really short course for this type of activity. Asking people to commit two days is a huge commitment uh, and really hard to do. And we didn't, especially physicians, not so much. Ironically, it's nurses and other allied health that don't get the funding that physicians do and don't have the, the monetary support for education. Um, that's been a real learning curve and trying to keep it uh, costly. We can talk about after you, um, but uh, learning about how other groups learn has really been neat. Um, but we needed a way to impart the information so everyone came in sort of on an equal footing. Uh, we started by writing a very short kind of 13 chapter book that uh, we would photocopy and send out to participants. And then from there, we kind of said, well, there's nothing like this in the literature, nothing, no textbook that really deals with CRM and trauma wouldn't be neat if this was published. We tried some publishers, didn't have much luck. Um, I happened to be writing a textbook chapter for a friend, uh, Dr. Kara Kitsos, um, who's overseas. And so I emailed him and said, hey, you know, how do you get something published? And uh, he said, well, you got to make it relevant. You got to make it appealing to publishers. And so he and I added a whole bunch of authors, a whole bunch of chapters that maybe aren't completely relevant to the text, but to the course, but are really neat and really interesting and unique uh, on a lot of military stuff, a lot of, um, a lot of uh, disaster stuff. Um, and then we approached Springer and they were super interested in it and excited. And that sort of led to our first edition of the textbook. Uh, my favorite chapter is the, the most useless chapter is a chapter on trauma in space. Um, it's fascinating. It's written by one of the NASA uh, flight surgeons. It's amazing, completely irrelevant to everyone other than someone who would go into space. But 
uh, an absolutely fascinating chapter. And so we tried to bring out chapters like that that are very unique and not seen in other textbooks. We don't want to recreate um, other texts. We wanted this to be different. Uh, also, you'll see in the text, there's this common thread of teamwork. So even though not all the chapters are completely relevant to the course, they still highlight how teams function and how trauma can be improved by teamwork and working together as a group. Um, so even though the, the topics may overlap with other textbooks, like the ATLS manual, we, we tried our best not to recreate it, but really highlight the, uh, the relevance to the course. So that was the first edition. Uh, Springer, it's been an extremely well-selling book um, in their top sellers in medicine. And so they came back to us this year and asked us if we do another edition. So we're working on a new edition. This time we've learned a lot about sort of content and what we want to see in the textbook. And so we've added actually the old textbook was about 35, 40 chapters. This one's going to be over 60. Uh, we've really added a lot of very interesting chapters. It's going to be really unique and way more team-based focused. Um, I think it'll be a great text. Some chapters have started to come in already. Chad's writing some chapters for us. Um, and so I think I can't wait to see the finished product this time around. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt, Lawrence, and, and I would say Sandy as well, you know, the whole country is so proud of you guys and, and proud of the, the product, both the textbook and the course that, that you continue to put out year after year. It's, it's, it's amazing. I, I was curious, um, you know, I certainly know behind the scenes and talking to you guys that you've had the opportunity and the interest from large surgical societies, including, if I can say it, the American College of Surgeons about essentially consuming or taking over your course. And of course, there's pros and cons with that. And we're uh, without doubt so happy you guys keep control of it. But I was just wondering if you could talk about some of those pros and cons of aligning a course like start with a with a major um, um, society and, and certainly your relationship with TAC has been good uh, to date as well. It's been a learning process for sure, Chad. Um, I've gone through um, actually multiple societies and groups and we can talk about the, the pros and cons of each. To be honest, we are still looking for a home for it. Uh, running a course out of literally, I say the trunk of my car is not ideal. Uh, it has lots of problems. Um, it has, um, it also doesn't carry the weight it does when it's associated with some form of society. And that certainly has been started to be an issue when we look at going overseas. Um, especially we've had a few courses that we've, uh, before the pandemic had set up in um, the Middle East. And it's always better if it carries the weight of uh, society behind it. Um, and just the administrative stuff. I do so much behind the scenes administrative stuff for this course that it's crazy to the point where I'm doing budgeting, I'm paying for food and then getting reimbursed from and collecting court fees myself, things like that I, is not sustainable uh, and is not grow like you can't grow a course that way. And uh, start has sort of reached the point, the tipping point where it's getting too big for it to be out of the trunk of my car. So we, it's not that we're not looking for a home for it. The challenge has been finding the right home for it. And what makes START really unique uh, also makes it difficult to find a home. So the multidisciplinary aspect to START, uh, I sort of alluded to before, is amazing and is actually my favorite part of it. I, I love teaching physicians, but physicians get a lot of education. Nurses, RTs, paramedics, there's very few courses for them to do, especially like this. And 
I actually more enjoy teaching them because they don't get this. They aren't exposed to this kind of education as often. They don't get the support for this type of education. And frankly, they don't have the finances to go seek out this education that physicians do. And so teaching them has been a wonderful experience for me. Um, and they are a big focus of why I still do this. Um, however, they also make it complicated when it comes to finding a society willing to take us on. So we actually started exploring things with the Royal College because ACES is linked to the Royal College or used to be. The Royal College was very interested. We got um, to the point where we were in discussions and then they decided um, they weren't going to do courses as much anymore. And so that sort of fell apart. We moved on to um, TAC. We've had some discussion with TAC has supported us in the background, but they don't really have the infrastructure to support the course sort of long term. Um, we've CAGS has also we've been in discussions with, but again, um, they weren't that keen on supporting the course um, in terms of administrating the course and taking on that um, sort of burden. It, it is a, a big deal. Uh, we worked with um, uh, the Emergency Society for a few years, actually, uh, and they were very close to taking on the course. Where we got into difficulty is they fund a lot of their um, a lot of their society based on fees from courses, which is fair for physicians. I mean, I don't think physicians have problems paying two thousand dollars for this type of course. Uh, but nurses and RTs can't afford that. They don't get the funding for that. So our goal has always been to keep the price competitive. Uh, but to do that, you need a society willing to understand that. And so charging two or $300 for a course that probably costs more than that to put on for the nurses and RTs wasn't palatable to a lot of groups. Um, so you're, you're actually losing money. You're, you're counting on the physicians to fund the other education, which most physicians don't care about. But groups don't don't see that value um so we are or we were in in discussion with american college actually before this happened uh, before the pandemic happened so we'll see where that goes um but we are still looking for a home if you know anyone <laughs> wants to take us on well it's it's amazing you know obviously we all know this with any any continuous and longitudinal project it takes an Im immense amount of behind the scenes work as you pointed out and passion and uh, and commitment uh, to make these go so uh, again kudos to to you it's uh, unbelievably impressive uh, you know we'd like to switch gears a little bit here and talk to you about your interest in your again really a national leader in terms of surgeon performed ultrasonography and in trauma but also the you know the critical care suite and, and general surgery as well and recently you published a, a really great um uh, manuscript in the Canadian Journal of Surgery on improving communication and telementoring. I was wondering if you could walk us through your pathway of involvement with ultrasonography from the from the beginning, maybe, and then uh, lead us up to uh, what you guys talked about in that great paper. Sure. Again, um, I guess like anything in um, careers, everything is a journey, and um, finding your home and finding your niche has been um sort of my journey over the years and I think I finally found sort of carving out a little bit of a niche and a uh, combination of education and trauma um so I started uh, I as you know I trained with Andy Kirkpatrick he's still a huge mentor of mine uh, we talk frequently and work together on projects 
he's been amazing. And obviously his passion is ultrasound. So I picked up a lot of that from him. Uh, we spent a lot of time during my fellowship um, writing papers together on ultrasound and studies on ultrasound. And I kind of carried that over when I started my career back here in Winnipeg. Um, there's a lot of work in ultrasound. Um, a lot of it's on the eMERGE side and critical care side, as you alluded to. And keeping up with that, um, just uh, techniques in ultrasound um, wasn't really, I started doing that. I spent some time working in optic nerve sheath uh, ultrasound, but quickly realized that that's sort of an area that's maybe beyond me a little bit and there's better people doing it um, out there. Um, but then realized that the area of education in ultrasound and simulation in ultrasound is a newer area and an area where I could contribute some of my education stuff and had a time I did nicely with the other simulation work I was doing in terms of picking a focus for my career. I think for new researchers, uh, you start broad, but eventually you have to focus and it's okay to have a few passions, but it's nice if you have one clear direction that your career can head. And mine certainly seems to have taken the, the path of education and simulation, which is wonderful. So we started doing more education and simulation stuff with ultrasound. So we made some models that we use for teaching optic nerve sheath. We worked a bit on simulators and ultrasound. Uh, we did some work on evaluating sort of the quality of ultrasound imaging and how you give feedback when you're teaching people ultrasound in hopes to improve credentialing in ultrasound. We've used some stuff with hand motion and ultrasound, hand motion analysis. Um, and we're uh, sort of one of the early groups to do that. And so that was sort of the direction we took. And then again, sort of tying together the work we've done with the start course and telementoring and a teleresuscitation just was the natural next step. And that paper isn't necessarily unique to ultrasound. It sort of applies to everything. What we wanted to look at was how there's a lot of uh, work done both by Andy Kirkpatrick and uh, a lot of his colleagues on the technology of telementoring and teleresuscitation. But uh, we wanted to focus more on the human factors and how you actually improve that interaction. And is there ways we can teach people to telementor better, basically? So our first step was this paper um, looking at um, just a review of what's out there. Uh, the short answer is there's very little out there, um, but there was some really neat stuff uh, from the um, EMS dispatch literature, which initially seems completely separate, but if you define telementoring or teleresuscitation as walking a novice through a procedure over distance, um, resuscitation or dispatch guided CPR makes sense. It's a simple skill. You're walking them through it over the phone and you clearly have a novice on the other end. doesn't matter that they don't have any medical training. And so that was kind of the easiest uh, corollary that we could find to learn a little bit from. And it was really interesting. Uh, what they found was using uh, people in crisis obviously are very overwhelmed. So using very simple language seemed to be better than making it more complex. Um, having a script for the person mentoring them over the phone, even though these people take these phone calls every day, this is what they do, but they still get caught up in the moment and miss things. And if you have a, a very formal script that they read from, it improves resuscitation and outcomes. It improves the quality of CPR being performed by the bystander and taking a few minutes to get to know the situation of the 
person there? What are their limitations? What does it look like around them? Is there a car on fire beside them? Is this their loved one that they're clearly um, connected to? Or is this a complete stranger, which may make the resuscitation easier for them? Um, taking the time to do those sorts of things uh, helped with the resuscitation as well. So I think these are lessons we can learn and take into our own resuscitations when we're guiding someone over the phone through a procedure. They may not be complete novice, but if they've only done a chest tube once in their ATLS course 10 years ago, it's very similar to a bystander doing CPR. So can we develop scripts that someone could read to help guide uh, both the uh, mentor, the person resuscitating, the, uh, helping with the resuscitation over the phone and help the outcomes of the resuscitation. Can we take a moment and get a, a sense of what their surroundings are, what their tools they have available, who they have to help them, uh, what's the, what their eMERGE is like? Are they in a small nursing station or are they in a formal emergency department? Uh, do they have a nurse with them or is it just a literally a janitor or someone who happens to be there that's untrained? Um, so I think there's lessons we can learn from this. I think there's a lot of work to be done in the human factors of telementoring and some work that we've started with Andy and with others looking at scripts uh, for simple procedures. And uh, I think this is just a starting point. Um, and then we have to work from here. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's so well stated. And it's, it's, it's such an interesting area, right? If we go back to sort of the, the grandfather of it all, although he would probably be mad at us for mad at me for using that term, Scott Dolchowski and the work that he initially <laughs> did in Detroit, um, with everybody from the, you know, the, the Red Wings to, of course, the ISS uh, astronauts. And he's really, you know, I think probably who is, is most impactful on Andy's career who would be impactful on, on yours and mine for sure. But it's it's a fascinating area. You know, it, it makes me think that the last time I was in Australia giving talks, I was in Brisbane in terms of the the extension beyond, you know, telementoring for ultrasound. But they they had a, a direct link. I had a, they had sort of a small room off in the eMERGE and they had video and they had audio. And they were actually concurrently or synchronously assisting in trauma resuscitations in Darwin, which you know most of us know is way in the north of Australia, almost near in Indonesia. Um, and, and it was remarkable. Like they had multiple camera angles and they were walking these guys through intubation, chest tube insertion, as you point out, even uh, ventilatory settings, like the whole deal. And you know, I just kept looking at it and, and thinking, what, why aren't we doing this in, in this country to a much greater extent, given, given our distance and, and you know, geography and, and timing? It's, it's a little bit beyond me. And, you know, a Andy and I have talked about that uh, on the podcast before. And probably we both or a lot of us feel a little bit guilty that that, that hasn't uh, been achieved. But, you know, I don't know what you think the, the sort of hurdles and the struggles have been in getting us there. You know, obviously, infrastructure historically has been one, but... I, I don't know. I, I just feel like we're we're underutilizing this whole line uh, across this country. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Um, certainly, we are in an environment where we do things over distance. I mean, Manitoba is probably the best example of that. We literally have people that come in eleven hours post resuscitation, post trauma, basically, and arrive in our emergency department just because of transport times and going through like they've been on a boat and they've been on a plane and they've been in the back of a snowmobile and a pickup truck you know by the time they get to us and is there steps on the way that you could be guiding resuscitation while they're waiting it's a great question 
like you said, though, how do you set up the infrastructure? Who's manning that infrastructure? You really need almost like a call center, I guess, where someone's sitting there by the computer. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a tough, tough question, but it uh, certainly is one worth asking. Well, you're you're exactly right. And I, you know, I I, I get the sense and, and this may sound overly harsh and, I'm, and I might be totally wrong in, in full disclosure, but I get the sense that the technology now is clearly there, you know, having witnessed it across some of these extreme environments that you and I have both been involved in. So the technology seems to be there. I, I think it's more, as you're saying, the organization piece and also the financial piece. I mean, we did have a pilot program in Calgary at one point. And we were trying to do that, I don't know, just over 10 years ago in Banff in terms of helping run their resuscitations and being helpful to them. Um, and when the funding went away, the project went away. And, you know, I, not, not everything's about money, but certainly uh, um, maybe government uh, commitments to funding these programs would, would be helpful for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's so much... Uh... There's so much going on. That's the problem, I guess, and how you prioritize funding, especially now. I mean, with the pandemic, um, that's right. Yeah, was expected, right? You know, like <laughs> everything bets are off there. now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But how, yeah, how you prioritize that? What comes first? It's it's a great question. I mean, we're still working on on a trauma system in Manitoba, so we're we're way behind that. But um, it's. Uh, it's a tough one. There, there's limited funding. Our our systems are at the breaking point already. So how you prioritize those things for potentially a small number, right? Like I think there's no mm-hmm. question that if you mm-hmm. live in a rural setting, you're at a disadvantage from a trauma perspective, right? There, there's no way, there's no way you can't be rather than being 10 minutes from a trauma center, right? But yeah, no, exactly. And we all know that the, the data clearly supports that, you know, injury for injury, you're going to have a much higher risk of complication and death across the board, no matter what mechanism you're talking about or what injury pattern. I'm just not sure that, you know, as a society, we've had that conversation and that, I mean, maybe, you know, more rural uh, folks uh, that live in those environments know that intuitively, I, I would expect they would, but it's certainly not a conversation we've had. And when you look at a few countries, and again, Australia being a good example, they do it so much better than us. And it's uh, it's something maybe to strive for. Yeah, there's, I mean, are people aware of it? I don't know. There's a fascinating study. I don't know if you remember where they asked people, how much worse outcome would you be willing to accept yes. to have your surgery locally in your own center versus having to travel to a big center? And a lot of people were willing to accept huge uh, morbidity just to have their surgery locally. So certainly, I, I think some people realize it, um, but they're they're so attached to their their local community, which is completely appropriate. I mean, they're wonderful communities um, that they're willing to accept that risk. But how much how much can you invest to level that playing field, and can you level that playing field? I don't know. Yeah, that's a great question for the future. You know, we, Amir and I wanted to switch gears one, one more time here and talk to you about family and the intersection with, with a busy surgical career and, and, and raising kids. You had a challenging event in your, in your family's uh, lives that really changed your, your family unit sort of forever. And I have no, no doubt it, it's changed the way that you um, and your family interact um, uh, from there forward uh, forever as well. I was wondering if you could tell us what your view of um, the intersection again between family and being a great dad, and then being a, a you know a high volume clinical 
as well as clearly, as we've talked about today, very, very busy academic uh, acute care surgeon as well. Yeah, so I mean, I no no secrets. I think most people, uh, at least that know me well, know my history. Um, so I'm certainly not uh, against sharing it. Uh, my wife passed away of breast cancer five years ago tomorrow, ironically. Um, so it's uh, it's always a tough time for us around this time of year. Um, it uh, it was a very short sort of she was only sick for about a year so it was uh, very quick and very unexpected obviously we were young at the time we have a very young family so we have four kids um they are currently i have to even stop and think uh sophie's the oldest and she's 11 michael is 10 um jack is eight and claire is six she was only one and a half when her mom passed away um <clears throat> It's nothing that anyone ex ever expects in their life. Um, it was obviously a huge blow to our family. Um, I think the only reason I kept going was because of the kids. Kids are unbelievable and amazingly resilient. And despite being very affected by this, they're also very normal kids and have a normal life. And it's amazing what they can grow through and what they've become um, because of this maybe, in spite of this, I don't know what the right term is. Um, it's obviously taught me a lot about priorities and about balance in life. Um, I will not begin to pretend that I understand balance and that I have any balance. Um, so, um, I can tell you what I've learned, but I certainly am not the, <laughs> I'm not the best example. I, we still struggle all the time. Um, I think it's taught me about prioritizing things. Um, it's taught me that you can't do everything well. And you have to accept that there are going to be limitations to what you can do. I certainly made some changes to my career after this happened. Um, I contemplated giving up either surgery or critical care, actually, just to kind of streamline life. And certainly my life would be simpler had I done that. I wasn't ready to do that. I was still really early in my career, only about five years in and wasn't really ready to make that sort of decision. And I'm glad I didn't in retrospect, I've carried on with both. Um, but keeping both, both of those is even challenging because they're very unique careers and very separate skill sets. And there's not a lot of overlap. So you have to do enough of each to keep relevant and to keep um, confident, really. Surgery is a bit of a head game. And if, uh, if you're not confident, uh, even if you have good skills, that can certainly impact you. Um, so balancing that and family life has been really challenging. We have a great nanny. She doesn't live with us, though. So when I come home, I go from one job to another and I take over um, from her and she goes home. And so even though I'm tired and exhausted after a long call night, I'm still up with the kids all day. And uh, so, like I said, I don't really have balance. I've kind of that's become our life and we all sort of work around it. Um, but finding some way to achieve that balance is what I would recommend to people. Sometimes you have to give things up. I gave up endoscopy, which I used to really enjoy, but something needed to give. Um, and uh, so that was something that was sort of a package that could easily be passed on to someone else, uh, which was okay. Um, but um, it's really hard. Um, and we still struggle every day trying to figure things out and how life works. Uh, one of the, on the personal side, one of the realizations where you, you realize you can't do everything. 
I, I really struggled. Carrie was an amazing mom. She was, that was her life passion. That was her goal. I mean, she was a nurse by training, but her whole goal in life was to have a family and to raise a family and to have a big family. And she did it so well. And she ran such an amazing household. And after she was gone, I really felt like I couldn't live up to that standard. And I really tried for a while. I tried for probably a good year to maintain a lot of the things how she would do it and try and do things her way and realize very quickly that wasn't sustainable because I couldn't, she was doing that full time. I couldn't do that and work at the same time, but I had these expectations for myself that I wasn't living up to. And I was feeling like a really terrible parent and then sort of a light bulb went off kind of, I don't know, maybe a year or two in um, where I realized, you know what? I'm a really good dad. I'm a really crummy mom and that's okay. Like I can't be both. And you know what, just because I, like I said, I can't meet all the standards. I got to let some go and you got to find the priorities in life and focus on those and you can't do everything. And so once I, once that clicked, I felt a little bit better. I felt, you know what, I'm going to focus on being a really good dad, not to, you know, that's being gender roles. And obviously I'm a, I'm more mom than dad most days. Um, but um, that helped me cope. That realization really helped a lot. Well, I think you're, you're, you're probably too hard on yourself, at least from the outside. I mean, the, there's no doubt the reason your kids are, are well-adjusted, beautiful, amazing kids is, is because of you, uh, you know, in addition to just kids being resilient and and you're always a, a, quite honestly, a beacon for a lot of us across the country when we struggle with, uh, you know, personal issues outside of um, medicine and our jobs in the hospital that 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 uh, cause us to struggle. Uh, you know, I, I, I was wondering what you think um, about, you know, colleagues or, or folks that you work with who maybe do have some large life event, whether it's an, an illness or a death in the family or a child, you know, getting into um, some sort of really uh, um, uh, challenging scenario. How, how do you think is is best uh, recognizing individual variability for us as colleagues to be supportive of that of that person, particularly within and and maybe you know maybe Winnipeg's different for sure, but within a, a sort of a, a surgical culture box that tends to be you know, as we've talked about really, um, um, you know, in the podcast already, head down, straight ahead, work hard, you know, keep to yourself, um, go, go, go. That's a tough question, man. Um, I wish I, I wish I knew the answer. Um, I'm not sure I'm good at that role, even having been through what I've been through, um, supporting others. Um, cause I don't know that there is a right answer. Like you said, I think everyone's different in what they need. Um, I think being there open, asking sort of what people need is important. Uh, I would say, I would say it's a, it's a double-edged sword. So in some ways I need support of my colleagues and my colleagues are very helpful with, you know, always certainly at the time, um, I was off for almost a year really, um, picking up my clinical load and helping with that, uh, being understanding when it comes to scheduling and things like that, especially around holiday time when really leaving the kids without anyone else is really hard on them. Um, 
so in that way, uh, being there and being supportive is important. But on the flip side, you also don't want to be treated differently either. You kind of just want to be, you, you kind of, we're all in the mindset. We just want to do our work, right? And you just want to put our head down, like you said, and do our work. And mm-hmm. you don't necessarily want to be treated differently. So everyone is a little different. And probably people go through both those feelings. I certainly do. Um, in some ways, I love the understanding. But in some ways, I also just want to be, want to be a normal surgeon. And I have to say my outlook on work has changed completely. So I obviously, like all of us, used to find work very stressful. Um, It brought a lot of it home, a lot of the emotions, a lot of the decisions, right, you bring home with you. After this, it's completely switched and I go to work to get stress relief. Um, And it's amazing. Like we have one of the most stressful jobs, yet... I feel so low stress at work because it's so normal um, and it's life as usual, right? I come home and I get reminders of what life is and the challenges and kids are, as you know, difficult and drive you crazy and work is just predictable. And I know, I know what work is about, but I don't know home life as much um, and I'm not as comfortable with it. And so now I go to work to, I always say, I feel better at work and I feel more relieved and I find work easier than I, than I do at home most of the time. Um, so it's amazing how that mindset changes as well. You know, when I, when I got divorced, it, it, it was, it was odd to me because you, you sort of, you know, I, I went into work every day, you know, worked goofy hours like we all do cranked away and nothing really, no one really said anything. And you, you know, I had this discussion with a number, there was sort of a cluster of divorces, to be honest, at, at our institution over a very short period of time across a whole bunch of surgeons in our group. And and a lot of us talked about it after, years after, and we kept expecting sort of someone to come over, you almost do, and tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, uh, you probably shouldn't work uh, right now. Or, you, you know, it's it, it's just interesting how, again, the, the clash between the traditional dogmatic surgeon and surgical culture sometimes doesn't doesn't reconcile um, super well with what an individual is, is going through, and, you know. And I, I I really like what what you said that of course everybody's different, but maybe the most important thing is to 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 address it and 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 just sort of be there for whatever that person and whatever their situation might might uh, might be. Uh, you know, I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. I'm also curious. You know, again, just from a purely logistical point of view, you, you mentioned having a nanny and, and certainly lots of single parents uh, in and outside of surgery, of course, do that. But, you know, beyond that, uh, what are some of the logistical things that, that you've learned or tricks and tips? What, what are the, you know, can't misses and, and maybe can uh, miss uh, events or things in terms of the kids? How, how is your, how is your, um, the, the structure of your, of your, of your family work? Uh, yeah, so to answer your first question, um, I, I think I was lucky again. Um, our At the time, Deb Wurzfeld was our section head. She was extremely supportive. Um, she's also a very blunt person. And actually, we have a nanny because of her, really. Um, it was shortly after Carrie got sick. We had always been the family that, like I said, Carrie loved being the homemaker. And we always just did everything ourselves. Um, which is partly why I guess I've been able to cope so well as I certainly was a, always an active participant in the family. I was up in the middle of the night feeding children and changing diapers. And so um, I'd never got a, I always was involved in it, um, certainly to a lesser extent. 
Um, but Deb, I remember I was talking about coming back to work. This was when after Carrie's surgery and when things were going well for a while. And she, she basically told me, you're not coming back to work till you get a nanny. Um, and that was it. That was, she's very blunt. She was like, nope, you're not coming back till you have a nanny. And within a week, we had a nanny. And um, so having someone like that certainly made things easier because um, she had no problem telling me what I needed to do. And uh, having been through some stuff herself as well probably helped. Um, but also in my situation, it is different, I think. I think I do get a lot of sympathy, obviously, and um, than other people do in other situations. And everyone's situation is different. Um, so um, it, it is hard, but um, I, I still think trying to be open and asking where you can help is probably the only way. Um, but it's, uh, I, I'm not good at it either. So I don't know, uh, I don't know the right answer. Um, in terms of family life, really, we've just kind of flustered through and trying to figure it out as we go. Um, like I said, we don't have a live-in nanny. Um, certainly it would be easier if we did in a lot of respects. Call is really difficult. Um, I actually have people sleep over when I'm on call just in case I have to go in, which is really challenging. Um, but, um, we just for us as a family, we never sort of envisioned having someone else live in the house. And so that's the, the route we've taken and, um, it, it has its advantages, um, but it has its, uh, has its challenges as well, for sure. Um, other tips I've learned, we have something called a cozy app. Uh, cozy is an app where you put in everyone's schedule. Everyone gets a little dot and, uh, you can share it amongst family members and amongst the nanny and everyone at Ivy. And so um, it tracks everyone's schedule. It has everything in there. So all the activities and, uh, but activities are probably the worst. Like kids are everywhere at every moment. I rely heavily on friends and teammates on hockey teams and dance friends. It's amazing what people do to help me. Like it really is a village to support this family. And without them, I wouldn't be able to do this. Um, there's no question. People pick up the kids, people grab the kids when I'm just not there or one of us doesn't make it in time. People will take the kids for lunch um, after a hockey game just to help us out. And so it's amazing what the community has done to, to help us. Um, otherwise, uh, we rely heavily on family. And that's been a real stumbling block with COVID, actually, because both Carrie's parents are super involved in the kids as well as my mom. And we're doing a lot of the childcare, but they're obviously older. Um, I am obviously high risk as are the kids for transmitting COVID. And so we haven't seen them uh, and haven't, uh, they haven't been involved in family life for really the last four or five months. And that has been super challenging um, because we went from having this huge village looking after the children to really just myself, Ivy, our nanny and Amy, who's Carrie's sister. And so between the three of us, we've had to, figure this out and they've been amazingly supportive um in terms of things that are important to the kids i would say two things one schedules are super important and routine so maintaining some sort of routine for the kids has been really important bedtimes routines on weekends my kids love routines when things get off and there's no routine that's when things start to fall apart and so so finding some way to maintain some form of normalcy and some form of routine has been really important for my children at least. And I think a lot of children sort of thrive in that environment. And if you are disrupting that routine frequently, it makes it really challenging. 
predicting, uh, having some predictability. So my kids hate when I have to change calls last minute. Last weekend, I forgot somehow that I was on call and realized sort of half an hour in that I had to leave. That really throws them off. So trying to warn them ahead of time is really important. And then life events are really important to them. I've never been a person about dates and birth dates and holidays. It's never been sort of an important part of my life, but wow, are those important to the children and being there for their dance recitals, being there for their important hockey games. They understand I can't be there for everything, but planning those ahead, I put those in my calendar and book them off. And it's really challenging because there's so many of them with all the kids. But uh, it's so important to the kids, especially in our family, where there's really no one else that kind of fills my role. If, if I'm not there, then they don't feel the same as having like the grandparents there. You know, it's just not the same um, Im important level, not, not to downplay the grandparents, but obviously they want their parent there. So those have been the real things we've struggled with is being there for, for them for those events. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the impact of on you know of COVID on I think everyone has been obviously such a struggle and really every facet of life and um, you know it's a single parent there, there's no question that the impact is uh, is almost beyond a, a measurable entity but you know I would say that your your kids I would predict you know years down the road are going to look back at this year and uh, like I hope mine do and and uh, maybe think of of some of the uh, fun things or unique things that might have happened in this, you know, one to two year window that, uh, that maybe will become good memories as well, despite all the struggles. Uh, at least that's my, my, uh, my optimistic hope. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, no doubt. You know what? It, you, you're not wrong. Like it's been a real family building and yeah. uh, sort of uh, building that core family for sure. Cause our evenings were a disaster. Like, You'd have right. like my kids don't do a lot. They do two do dance and two do hockey, but you take two in competitive dance and two in pretty competitive hockey. That's a lot of nights and days yep. that they're off and things. And we would run like we would we'd never have dinners at home. They'd be eating in the arena or eating at dance. Now we're every evening we're together. We every I mean, yeah, it's boring. Yeah, we're trying to kill each other on most days. But we're also spending time together. We're playing board games. Mm -hmm. We're doing puzzles. We're going sledding. So I, I agree. Like it's been a struggle and it's been a challenge and they need those activities and they miss them. But it's also been really good for the family element and sort of building that family core that is probably lacking in a lot of people's lives um, just because of the way our careers are and the way our kids are and the way sort of activities work and life works nowadays in this society. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, it, it, a lot of this is, has made me reflect. I think all of us has made us reflect um, on so many things. And I, you know, I, I realized that driving my kids, uh, you know, in between all those, all those events, is, as you say, uh, in an evening and, and eating, you know, dinner in the in the vehicle and everyone cheering each other on is, is something I completely miss in the COVID era. And, you know, I never found it overly stressful. I just found it so enjoyable. And I, I do miss that element. And I, I think the the kids even now, at you know, my kids' age, which are similar to yours, look back and 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 they really have a new and and profound um, uh, respect and fondness for for that for that car activity to activity world. But uh, yeah, I, I agree. You know, this is a this is a different time as well. 
one of the things that we we try to ask most of our guests um, at at the end of the show is if you were to go back and give yourself advice as a trainee, having kind of lived the life that you've lived and had the career that you've had so far and having experienced the things that you've experienced, if you had to go back and, and give yourself advice as a trainee, what would that advice be? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I always wonder if I would even take this career knowing sort of what it brings with it and the challenges. Uh, I love what I do, but I also see the impact on my family and I see the impact on the kids and saw the impact on Carrie when she was with us. And you wonder if maybe you'd even choose this career necessarily. The, the challenges, I think most of us don't know what else we would do. Uh, we love what we do, but we also hate the impact that it has on on those around us. Um, so that would be the first thing I would I would think about and think about alternate careers, to be honest, in some respects. Um, but I think I would probably still end up where I am. I'm not sure I would push my kids to this career, though. And uh, I'm certainly pushing them, uh, letting them take their path, but pushing them away from medicine as best I can. Um, but we'll see what they end up doing with uh, their unique personalities. Um, in terms of career uh, advice, um, I think follow a path, stay open-minded, um, let your career guide you. And like, a, like this experience with Start, this experience with Simulation, I've sort of been open-minded and let my research path go where it leads and kind of followed it along rather than trying to be too um, dogmatic about it and too guiding and been open to new experiences and to new things. And when people come to me with research ideas, I kind of say, yeah, let's give it a go. Why not? Let's try something new. Um, and collaborating with others has been a, a huge learning experience from a research perspective. Um, from a clinical perspective, I think really it's important to focus on balance um, and realizing the importance of family and those among you. I wish uh, when Carrie was around, I spent more time with the family. Uh, I'm certainly way more involved in family life than I was back then. And I wish I had taken the time to, to be more involved at the time. Uh, I see now how important that is to everyone. And you don't necessarily realize that when you're young in your career, you're focused on sort of performing and focused on working as hard as you can. But the work is endless. There, there's You will never do enough and you will never feel like you've done enough. And there's always more. And sometimes you just got to take a step back and know your limitations as a person, know how much you can do and realize that these life moments aren't going to be here forever. These kids aren't going to be young forever. And it's important to spend those times with them, go to their dance competitions, go to their hockey games, be at home with them, do a puzzle, play with them um, and uh, focus uh, on family life as well as career because they're important as well. And they're, they're uh, a very finite um, entity for sure. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.